Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Chris Harrison. Um, he's faculty at CMU, and he works in the Department of Human-Computer Interaction. Chris, how are you doing? That's right. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, uh, can you give listeners just a brief overview of your, your research and your efforts in this area right now? Yeah, of course. So, uh, I'm a computer scientist by training, and what I'm focusing on in my research is human-computer interaction. So, taking a lot of the advances that we're seeing in computer science and in technology broadly and applying them to this very specific problem of trying to make the interaction between human and computer uh, more powerful, more intuitive, and, and overall just more delightful. So specifically, what, um, you know, let's drill down a little bit. What are you working on right now? What, what kind of project or projects? So we're doing many things in the lab. It's hard to characterize um, the kind of the big umbrella because we have many ongoing threads. Um, but some major ones include uh, thinking beyond our current multi-touch devices, you know, what does multi-touch 2.0 look like? Um, because chiefly, you know, the touchscreen experience hasn't really evolved tremendously since the iPhone was released, you know, basically 10 years ago. And so we're trying to think about what's the next step in that evolution where we get to use our hands in even richer ways. There's another really significant thread, which is looking at how we can bring touch interactivity to more aspects of our lives. So not just you know, the little rectangles that we might carry in our pockets or in our bag, but how do you drape touch interactivity across entire environments? You know, for example, if your whole house, all the walls were multi-touch interactive, how would that change the experience? So are you seeing that uh, this would be a benefit to people to have more touch interaction or is it just, you know, hey, we've got to push this in some direction? I mean, uh, so I would what argue about that, voice? Yes. What about other types of interaction? Or are you focused on on touch, do you see that that's going to be a really um, a better way to interact with things? Yeah, so there's a lot of different facets to your question, so I'll try to unpack that. So, yeah, voice is great. It's great for certain things. It's sort of terrible for other things. Uh, so voice is definitely part of the ecosystem of ways we're going to interact with future technology, but I don't think it's the only way that we'll interact with it. There's something very nice about touch and very precise and continuous about touch that make it powerful, which is why you mostly are you know, using your fingers for input on your smartphones and tablets and not voice. Voice is great for things like um, actions or discrete commands. So what time is it in Mumbai? What time, you know, what, where is the closest pizza parlor? Those kind of things, voice is really good. It's sort of a Q&A. But anything that requires kind of manipulation or even creativity, like, for example, putting together a PowerPoint presentation or editing this podcast, That'd be really difficult to do with voice. It'd be very imprecise, and it'd probably take you many times longer. So touch and voice are not ones better than the other. They're just different, and it's important to recognize that they're different. With respect to the first part of your question, that why would we want to bring touch interactivity everywhere? You know, our smartphones, you might argue, are already disruptive enough. You know, we're sitting at the dinner table, and someone's whipping out their smartphone and, and sort of breaking from that social contract. And I think that's true, and there is a danger there. But I would also argue that if you look at the long-term trend of what bringing computing to ubiquity has, has done, so the fact that we have in our pockets 
know, access to the internet and telecommunications resources and, and ways to create information and, and retrieve it is really powerful. And what we want to do is bring that even a step further so that it's sort of, it's much more like electric lighting is in your house where it's just sort of in the ether. So I could walk up to any wall and if I want to look at my calendar or look at what is sitting, you know, what shows are available for streaming, I don't have to walk up to a special purpose, you know, seven inch diagonal screen, but instead I can just have that information right there on my coffee table, right there on the, you know, the, the door of my refrigerator, right there on my kitchen countertop. So it's, it's sort of taking it to the extreme where we want information, you know, literally at our fingertips everywhere we are in the same way that you can flip a light switch and you have light everywhere you are. Where do you think the, the preferred place the touch will be? What about your wrist? And, and mm-hmm. how would this happen? How would you activate any surface, literally, you know, to, uh, to touch upon? Do you think it'll be someone's hand that they'll want to use, you know, so they don't really have to go anywhere and touch any surface? Or do you think it'll be like, right, they're sitting on the couch and they just do it on the arm of the couch? Or how would that work? Mm -hmm. I think there's a a couple of technical possibilities. There's three main approaches. One is that what you just described, sort of on-body interaction, where we're co-opting the human body as the input surface. And I've done a lot of work in this area. So you could have uh, touch and even projected graphics on your skin. So rather than having to carry around that little uh, rectangle with you, you sort of just have your body almost like as a digital tattoo. But rather than actually doing it with something permanent, we can do this with very small projectors that are coming onto the market. Some of them are about the size of a sugar cube now and are are approaching the feasibility of inclusion into smartwatches. And then from that smartwatch, or maybe doesn't have a screen on that smartwatch, instead it sort of projects out of both sides and it's illuminating both your forearm and your palm, and you can use that as a touchscreen. Another approach which we've been developing is this notion of of kind of a light bulb 2.0. So we have in my lab, I'm actually looking at it right now, is we have a, a, a standard fixture light bulb that has a regular socket, and but it's not just any old light bulb that just emits light. It's actually a digital projector. So you, you still get light, but you can also structure that light so that you can project interfaces onto the environment. And we use some other special tricks that actually make those touch sensitive as well. So this is something that you could, you know, for example, buy a five pack of these Android powered light bulbs. And you could replace the light bulbs, you know, maybe in the recessed uh, cans above your kitchen countertop, or maybe you buy one for your, you know, for the desk lamp uh, on your table at, at home. And then that whole table or that whole kitchen countertop is for all intents and purposes, uh, a multi-touch computer. It doesn't, the applications that are running on your countertop or on your wall or on your sofa, they don't know that they're running on a sofa. They think they're running on a tablet. All that can be hidden from them. So you can just run, you know, Gmail right on your table, your Google Calendar right on your table. And then finally, the third option is sort of augmented reality, but not with a, not through projection, but with wearing something, sort of a Google Glass or Microsoft HoloLens style interaction. So it's, it's totally virtual, and you, it, instead we're sort of putting the screen not on the environment, but right in front of your eye. And that would also unlock similar sort of um, ubiquitous computing experiences. That's pretty cool. Yeah, the light bulb one I, I've never heard of at all. It's interesting. Yeah, it's not so science what's... fiction. We have it running. You can screw this thing in right now, and and boom, you're and just a, and you know light comes out first, and you perform a particular gesture or you give a voice command, and then the interface actually renders directly on onto whatever surface it is. There's no calibration required. You know, it would be really cool. I don't know how useful it would be, but if you can, you know, under the um, I don't know what you call it, the, you know, where the light gets where the light goes under a particular light bulb, you know, it, it would go out in all directions, but. If you could focus it into a spotlight as you needed or, or direct more light to a certain area of your desk by touching. Absolutely possible. You know, and it's a digital projector. So you have total flexibility. So 
you know, one of the apps could be, as you suggested, which sort of provides like a spotlight. But, you know, it could just mm-hmm. as easily be your a digital calendar. It, it actually doesn't matter to the application. So that's a really a great and simple, elegant example of uh, a simple assistive application. But we can also do things like uh, use optical character recognition, too. If you lay down a, a business card on your desk or open up a newspaper, you can actually Google search or copy that to your clipboard. For Let's say you could still have a regular computer sitting on this desk. We can just make a much more of a synergistic experience where they're all working together. So if I, you know, control C on that business card in the real world, it actually just pops up into the text on my desktop automatically. So we can do all now that we're, it's not that, not that computing is confined to these little rectangles that we've sprinkled around our world, but rather computing is now existing in the world. Um, You can have it do all these things, this kind of mixed virtual physical interaction. That's really interesting. So when do you think that the inside of our houses, for instance, will be changed by this, or when we're walking around that, you know, we're going to have some of the, the technology you mentioned in use, and and what will it look like? Let's, you know, let's, inside your house, X number of years from now, mm-hmm. however long you think, what's it going to look like? How do you think a, a family, for instance, will navigate the inside of their house? So I'm actually optimistic about one of those paths and sort of a little bit more dystopian on another. So I think in the house, it will look cleaner and more minimalist than a house does today because all those light switches that are put into walls uh, can be gone. So walls will be flat. You can touch anywhere on that wall to turn on your light, right? The whole surface is interactive. So it isn't that I have to go to some mechanical switch to turn it on or off. So I think actually the future home will look even more kind of minimalist and, and pure than what we have today with all these little wires running everywhere. Because uh, And again, if we co-opt light bulbs, you know, there's already an infrastructure in houses that give you power. When it's not a battery-powered device, we can be quite power hungry uh, because we don't have to worry about uh, batteries. And so pretty much anywhere you can screw in a light bulb now would be applicable for the technology that we're developing. And you could just buy, again, you know, a five-pack or you could replace every light bulb in your house if you wanted to, if you wanted to fully saturate the environment. And anywhere where you know, photons are hitting now, you'd have the ability to render information and interactivity. So I think that could be pretty seamless. Um, you know, why have the nest on your wall when you can have a much more expressive and rich application that's, you know, that doesn't just have a turn knob, but rather a whole multi-touch interface that could be as large as it needs to be for the length of that interaction and then disappears again. On the other hand, on the body side, I think that it's much more open. Obviously, uh, and if you look at my own research, I can, I can make fun of my own research here. A lot of the early prototypes we did were these sort of gigantic things that sat on people's shoulders or strapped to people's arms. And they had a computer and a projector. And they were pretty goofy, uh, quite honestly. And so what we need to do to make that vision of, of sort of computing on the go is, is tremendous miniaturization. But, but luckily, that's happening, you know, without our help. You mentioned a dystopian portion. Which portion is dystopian and why? Yeah, so I, I could see the body thing. So I, I like how in the home it could become more minimalist. What I don't want to see on the body, and this is just my personal view, is that we're all cluttered over with technology. Uh, you know, I don't want, I don't, I personally, and, and this isn't, doesn't speak for everyone, I don't want to have to wear something on my face uh, to have that interactivity. Um, but which is interesting because if you think about it, like I, I wear glasses and no one looks at me strange in the street that I'm walking down the sidewalk with glasses. And if you think about glasses, they too are an assistive technology. They, they, in fact, they are augmenting my reality by allowing me to see better. But it doesn't have the same social stigma. And so it may be that in 50 years, you know, walking down the street with something like a HoloLens wouldn't carry that stigma either. 
this is now going into the world of fashion and not technology. This is the social implications of technology, which are fascinating and much more complicated. Um, and so I, I do feel like there's a danger, although I hope it doesn't happen, that the biggest barrier to adoption of these amazing augmented reality technologies is the, the, the social stigma, because we get it wrong. And I think a lot of people would argue that Google Glass got it wrong on their first version. Uh, and there's a backlash that holds back what was otherwise a really pioneering technology. So I, I, I want to see in, in 10 or 20 or 50 years that technology adds to the human experience, not detract from it. And I think you know, some people would already argue that smartphones have gone too far and that are, they are more of a social nuance than a, than a social convenience. And I think you get different perspectives mm. on that. And I think people would say, well, smartphones are already borderline. But now if it's like, you know, if I have a display over my eye and I'm getting seeing tweets of people's lunches all day long and, you know, esoteric yeah. information, that that's going to be, you know, ruinous to society. And I think that's absolutely possible. So it's, it's up to people uh, in the computing and sort of in technology fields to think about the way to curate that and deliver real value and not just a flashy product. And I think that's a huge, grand challenge for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, let's say you're going and you're visiting a place. You know, there's people that don't seem to even look at the place with their own eyes. They're, you know, years ago, they would just constantly take pictures. Now they're constantly snapping selfies. It's ridiculous. You know, I, I visited Italy recently. And you're in these beautiful cathedrals and people are like doing selfies. Like, you know, who cares? Why don't you look at the stuff with your own eyes? So, right. Yeah. You know, if someone wears the Google goggles, uh, Google Glass, there'll be a, a, I don't know what percentage of people that will everything will be filtered through this. And they won't even look at reality. You know, it's crazy. Yep. I mean, a lot of people go to concert, right? And then look at the whole concert basically through the, the viewfinder of their smartphone, right? Yeah. But we are very much imparting our judgment on that. It probably means that me and you are just getting too old, to be honest with you, right? Um, <laughs> because obviously people that are going to Europe, they extract, they see that there's a social value of them posing in all those selfies. So it, it's, you know, they wouldn't do it. If, there was, if it was just socially detrimental and they extracted no joy out of it, then they wouldn't do it. So we have to assume that humans are rational creatures and they're extracting some value out of it. So it just means that the value system is changing. And this is the really interesting thing about working in the field like human-computer interaction, is it's not just about the technology. It's about the interplay of technology with society. And of course, when you have a human in the loop, and like I understand how like a, you know, a processor and RAM, like that's all deterministic. I can totally get that as a computer scientist. But humans are not deterministic. They are weird in many ways. And so it's hard to uh, sometimes predict how these things will be adopted. Definitely, yeah. The, you know, talking about touch brought an idea to my mind. You know, right now, Many people have cell phones. Do you think that in the next few years, you won't even need a, a device that you hold in your hand, but there'll be some mechanism by which maybe you have a um, a device that you keep in your pocket, you never have to take out, and you're just touching again on your arm, you're bringing up a screen, so you don't have to hold a phone in your hand anymore. You can just, you know, again, just use your body for all the functionality of a phone. Maybe you have a little earpiece you put in, for the talk aspect, but if you're not talking, you don't have to be holding a device anymore. It becomes dematerialized essentially in its use. I think it's absolutely possible, but I don't think it's going to happen for a while yet, even if those technologies happen. And it's for the same reason that we still have desktops and laptops and tablets and smartwatches and smartphones. They're all powerful computers these days, but those different form factors enable 
different types of interactions. So it's not that the smartphone came out or tablets came out and now laptops are dead or there's still no need for a desktop. Is you use those as tools for different things. A smartwatch is good at some things and a laptop is good for other things. So it's like a screwdriver and a hammer. It's not that one's a better tool than the other. They're just different. And I think that that's really important to appreciate. And so I think the smartphone kind of slate, you know, and, and now all these smartphones look identical. And that's because in the, in the same way that actually a lot of laptops sort of look identical. You have to almost double take some of these laptops because they're all just sort of, you know, thin screen. They're all about the same size. We actually haven't seen laptops really shrink that much anymore because we want a full-size keyboard on them. So most of them are sort of around 13 to 15 inch screen. And smartphones are going through the same transition where they're all commoditizing to this very useful and very successful form factor. And so they will continue to get thinner and better battery life. But I actually think if I teleported you 10 years into the future, you would recognize what a smartphone would look like. In the same way, if we went back to 2007, you know, we took someone from the iPhone 1 launch and we teleported them now and showed them an, an iPhone 8. They'd go, okay, yeah, like it looks the same. Obviously, it's thinner and it's like a nicer looking screen and I'm sure it's a lot faster. But is it really that different from the first iPhone? No, I think they wouldn't be like blown away even though 10 years have passed. And I think if you teleported someone right now, 10 years into the future, yeah, it'd be a really slick looking device. It'd be like totally bezel-less with like a 8K screen and all, all those, you know, 20 megapixel camera, whatever. But I don't think it'd be right. something out of science fiction. I think what's going to happen that's more likely is what you say, which is that we'll get new devices in the same way that 20 years ago, there was no real smartphones or tablets. And now we have added those to our arsenal. Not that laptops went away, we just have new categories of devices. And I think if we did teleport 10 years into the future, we might see something like a Google Glass or HoloLens or like a projected smartwatch where we have interactions on our skin and maybe AR interactions. Um, but I don't think that we would necessarily lose the smartphone. I think that that's, smartphones are really good at what they do. You know, high quality images, obviously touching your fingers onto the screen, this notion of direct manipulation is really powerful. You don't get that in AR. You can sort of wave your hands around in the air but it's, it's, so that's great for some things and terrible for others. That, it's sort of a theme that we've touched on a couple of times in this call. Interesting. Okay. Any other unusual applications that most of the public doesn't know about you see coming? You know, the one great example was the light bulb with projectors in it. I thought that was pretty cool. Anything else that you, you're privy to that most people aren't? Hmm. Trying to think about what we're working on the, in the lab right now. We, we, are, we are working on a digital paper application where we sort of, purposely put ourselves into this really tight corner, which was says, you know, if we want to have paper be a touchscreen, um, you can't just make that a hundred dollar sheet of paper. That's how you do it right now. So how do you make a touchscreen that costs, you know, whatever one cent more than your one cent piece of paper? So you, you, you still double the cost, which is not insignificant, um, but it makes it plausible that you could have paper not just be a writing surface, but for example, automatically digitize your ink and send that to an email or you know when you you know when you write a post note it also posts uh, to your like to do list automatically. Just paper, you know, even though people have argued for a long time that we're achieving this paperless future, actually paper consumption has has grown globally by quite a margin since like the 1970s. So paper is still amazing for what it does. I use paper every day, despite you know being in a very highly technical place. So we've been working on a technology that lets us do extremely like ridiculously low cost uh, touch sensing. Um, and we're applying that to paper, and it does seem to be successful. Though I would ha I would honestly say we're probably more at the ten cents per sheet range than the one cent per sheet range where we want to be. But nonetheless, that's mm -hmm. still a lot better than a hundred dollars. Um, we're also doing a lot with uh, we did we built a smartwatch just recently 
that actually can uh, use a medical technique called tomography. This is what, you know, like CAT scans and MRI machines use that, you know, they kind of circle your body and then they can see inside of your body. They can you know, see like the, the cross section of your brain. And so me and one of my PhD students worked on a, a low cost tomographic technology that you can wear on a smartwatch. And what it does is it actually lets you see inside your body. You can actually see a cross section of your arm, of your wrist, while you're wearing this smartwatch. So it's actually it's sort of like an x-ray vision into your body. And obviously this has health implications, but what we used it for was gesture recognition because we thought it's sort of silly that you have this smartwatch sitting on your wrist and it knows nothing about what your hands are doing, right? It doesn't know what gesture it's performing. It doesn't know what you're grabbing or anything. It's just basically, you know, the current conception of smartwatches is that they're basically miniature smartphones that live on your wrist. And we, we totally disagree that that's, that's the most exciting thing you can do with smartwatches. So we built this technology that actually lets us do gesture recognition in real time by actually compositing this cross-sectional view of your arm. But it doesn't do it with any. It, it's totally non-invasive. Um, so that's doing that in, in a non-invasive way. So it uses a very low current electrical signal. So the particular technique we use is called electrical impedance tomography. It basically is measuring the resistance between different parts of your um, of your skin. And using these tomographic algorithms, we can compute if we see a certain resistivity between certain points around your arm. We use like basically our, our smartwatch strap has a number of electrodes that wrap around the arm. And from that, we can basically build up sort of a mesh of measurements. And then we can use some very powerful heavyweight algorithms to actually figure out what the inside of your arm must have looked like. And we can actually see all your muscles moving around and where your bones are. It's actually really neat to see this in real time. Really but this cool. is about the same electrical current. So when you touch like a smartphone screen, the way it senses your, your position of your touch is you actually are sucking a little bit of current out of that touch screen. And we use about the same level of current as those techniques. Very interesting. All right. So um, I guess, you know, last item, is there a spot where listeners can um, essentially find any more information about the projects you're working on as a resource or perhaps get in touch with you about a collaborative project? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, probably the best resource is to go to my, my personal webpage, which hosts all of my research, and that's chrisharrison.net. Uh, and there's a research tab. And if you go in there, all the projects that I've talked about uh, so far uh, are, are in some uh, form posted there. And there's great videos that show all the touch tracking and light bulbs and so on. So I definitely encourage uh, your listeners to uh, go check that out. Okay. Well, Chris, great. Thank you so much for coming. And I really appreciate it. It's going to be really interesting with the stuff you're working on and, and what other places are working on in the near future. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 